addressed also to the journalism fellows, but if there's anything that I say that you just think, what in earth is she talking about? Just throw up a hand and let me know, because I, I'm happy to explain it, but it's always quite difficult to, to pitch something like this, where I sort of give the fact that old tribal loyalties, you know, I've been Labour all my life, we always vote Labour, those things are breaking down in British politics. And we have a situation in which the government is absolutely hopelessly deadlocked. So next month, as I said, I am leaving. That is me before two referendums in direction, and that's, that's me afterwards. Uh, I showed this to my friend Laura, and she said, wow, oh, I never thought you looked like your mother before. <laughs> so that's a, that's a glimpse of the future right there. Um, there are plenty of reasons why I'm moving on, not least that if a week is a long time in politics, then eight years is an absolute age in journalism. As I said, when I started at New States in December 2010, we were six months into Britain's first experience of a coalition government for several decades a surprising and surprisingly strong alliance between David Cameron's Conservatives and Nick Clegg's Liberal Democrats. Since then, we've had two more general elections, a Scottish independence referendum and a referendum on our membership of the EU. At the top of Labour, Ed Miliband has been replaced by Jeremy Corbyn, a much more overtly left-wing leader. Nick Clegg was replaced first by Tim Farron, a practising Christian whose beliefs were hard to reconcile with the party's social liberalism, and then by Vince Cable. Vince Cable will be replaced as Lib Dem leader in July, about the same time the Conservatives choose our new Prime Minister for us. In both the general elections I've covered, as well as the Labour leadership election in 2015 and the US presidential election in 2016, the working assumption of most political journalists about the result has been wrong. That's not only embarrassing, but it has grave implications for our trade. It is the first failure of political journalism that I want to talk about. Historians warn about something they call the teleological view of history, assuming a fixed endpoint and then telling the story as if it was always headed for that moment. Something similar has happened over and over again in political journalism. In 2015, we assumed that the Conservatives could not win an overall majority. The most likely result, most journalists assumed, was a Labour minority government backed up by the SNP, the Scottish National Party. That affected the questions we asked. To Labour's Ed Miliband, would you do a deal with the Scottish Nationalists? Would you give them another referendum on independence? How much money would you give to Scotland to get their votes? All of that affected the shape of the narrative around that election, and it affected the Conservative squeeze message to bolster their own support. Now, that is a, a, a Conservative poster from the 2015 election with Ed Miliband in Alex Salmon's pocket. They also did a version of this with Nicola Sturgeon. And it was incredibly effective in the English marginal seats that they needed to win. Because what that said was, Scotland's going to prosper at your expense. And it wasn't just journalists who assumed the wrong endpoint. In the years since, senior Tories have since admitted that the Conservative manifesto that year was written with the idea that some of its policies would have to be junked in a horse trade with the Liberal Democrats. Cut to election night 2015. The exit poll arrives, and it is an overall majority for the Conservatives, the one outcome that no one really saw coming. A bit a slim one. All those questions about the SNP were not just redundant, but might have influenced the outcome. At the same time, insufficient consideration was given to what the Conservatives might do with a majority. The answer was an EU referendum, long demanded by a small but monomaniacal subset of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. Once again, political journalism struggled because it assumed the result in the referendum, remain, and worked backwards from there. In the course of the campaign, I can remember hardly any consideration being given to what form Brexit would take. It was deemed unlikely to happen, and therefore insufficiently interrogated. That has had enormous repercussions in the years since. Brexit means Brexit, said Theresa May. But during the referendum campaign, the Vote Leave campaign spokesmen, and they were mostly men, were extremely hazy on the form that leaving might take. 
It took until the 8th of May 2016, that's just a few short weeks before polling day, for the BBC's Andrew Marr to get a definitive statement on our future membership of the single market from Michael Gove. Here's what he said. Andrew Marr said, let me just ask you before we leave the economics, a very simple question I've tried to get an answer from people on your side. Should we or should we not be inside the single market? Do you want us to stay inside the single market? Yes or no? Michael Gove, no, we should be outside the single market. We should have access to the single market, but we should not be governed by the rules that the European Court of Justice imposed on us, which cost business and restrict freedom. Now, I don't know if any of you remember watching that interview, but it was a huge turning point in the campaign. It was the first time that we were told by Vote Leave, the official organisation, that what Brexit meant was leaving the single market. At that point, that was hard Brexit. Right? That's, so what about the customers union, which we now hear a lot about, which is really the reason for the Irish border backstop? Well, the customs union didn't even get a look in. That was considered to be way off-piste in some crazy vein that no one would possibly suggest. Leave campaigners before the referendum weren't consistent on whether or not Brexit means leaving the customs union. That's the claim that Full Fact, the fact-checking website, it, it looked into. And it said, well, it was rarely mentioned. There were general calls to have an independent trade policy, which would mean leaving the customs union. But messages about specific trading arrangements weren't always consistent. So you have a situation in which what is now sold as being the bare minimum of Brexit was never really promised us or put on the record by senior figures in vote leave during the campaign. As for the fabled WTO terms, that's World Trading Organization terms, or you're leaving without any deal at all, which has been suggested by at least one Tory leadership candidate, Esther Vey, Boris Johnson has also said we'll leave on the 31st of October, deal or no deal. No one was talking about that in 2016. It would be extremely useful now to have on-the-record statements from 2016 from current Tory leadership candidates on that issue. We could then see how far their positions have moved in three years and how much more extreme the Conservative position has become. But because we all assumed Remain was going to win, those questions just couldn't get the oxygen they needed during the campaign. Let's go across the Atlantic. There aren't many things that Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn have in common, but here is one. Both were treated as joke candidates at the start of their primary races or the Labour leadership contest. And joke candidates just don't face the same level of scrutiny as frontrunners, which is a problem when they turn out to actually be serious contenders after all. When I wrote about post-truth politics for Neiman Reports, the New Yorker journalist Evan Osnos told me, for many months there were reporters who were still too light-hearted about the Trump phenomenon long after it should have been plain to them that it was not remotely funny. It was a mistake to allow him to go on television month after month, phoning into interviews that would ordinarily require the person to be in the studio and subject to the kind of scrutiny that an in-person interview produces. But instead, because he was treated as something between a joke and a boon for ratings, he was allowed to call in. That was an abdication of responsibility. Even once it was a straight fight between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, too often she was treated like the next president and he was treated like the entertainment. There was a double standard of scrutiny. A similar pattern was true of Jeremy Corbyn in 2015. He started the race as a 100 to 1 outsider and it was only when constituency Labour parties began to return their endorsements that early polling figures putting him way ahead were vindicated. The rest of the coverage of him focused on the unlikelihood of his candidacy, the idea that a 60-something lifelong backbencher could become leader of the opposition. It was a kind of fairy tale, but that strong personal story squeezed out consideration of his positions. Anti-America, sympathetic to Russia, opposed to NATO, sceptical of the EU, willing to talk to Hamas and the IRA, but less so to say Israeli politicians. Chukramuna, now Change UK, refused to serve in Corbyn's first shadow cabinet, 
saying that Corbyn refused to him, told him that he refused to definitely campaign for a Remain vote in the EU referendum. I wonder whether I got it wrong myself during this period. I was not a fan of Corbyn from the start, precisely because I knew the strain of left-wing politics he represented, and it was not the same one as mine. But because I opposed him openly, in admittedly caustic terms, did I lose the credibility to criticise him? Was there a way to have covered his early candidacy, which was both fair to him and his appeal, and took into account the views which would later make him so polarising? It's a deeply personal question because I have friends who are early Corbyn supporters and now find his position on the EU, his willingness to accomplish Brexit, as long as it's a Labour Brexit, utterly incomprehensible. Why didn't anyone warn us he was a Eurosceptic, they complain? We did and you wouldn't listen, I silently reply. But again, really, the error comes from the teleological view of politics. With the EU referendum months and months away and a win for Remain expected, Corbyn's Euroscepticism seemed like a minor quirk rather than a defining part of his politics. We failed again to make the case for what really mattered. In 2017, I was determined not to make the same mistake again. Talking to our incredibly talented writer, Stephen Bush, now the New Statesman's political editor, we vowed to keep our minds totally open to what the election result might be. Looking at the headline polls, it seemed as though Theresa May would storm to victory, increasing the majority from 12 to, what, 50, 100, 150? So there's the, um, there's the Daily Mail, <laughs> one of the greatest hubristic uh, front pages in history, that one. Uh, in a stunning move, Mrs May calls the bluff of the game-playing Ramonas with a snap election and vows to crush the saboteurs. Oh, yeah, at the time, as that Telegraph story next to it, you know, they had a huge, huge poll lead, but we were determined to stay open-minded, not to assume we knew the result before the contest started. <coughs> we decided that whatever the poll said, we would interrogate the other more seemingly unlikely possibilities. We commissioned our newest writer, Patrick Maguire, to write a series of pieces on the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland. Why had senior Tories been seen at their meetings? They were clearly being lined up as potential partners, not for a coalition like the Lib Dems, but a looser confidence and supply agreement. That's when a smaller party agrees to pass budget motions and support the government in confidence motions in the House, but everything else is kind of up for grabs and negotiated on an ongoing basis. During the campaign itself, Stephen took a hard look at the polls and wrote a story about how Corbyn's numbers were improving over the election period. On the 11th of May, he published a story headlined, Unnoticed and Unreported, Jeremy Corbyn is Surging in the Polls. It did extremely well on Facebook, thanks to a boost from the left-wing campaign group Momentum, but made little impact in the Westminster village. But there were signs that May was in trouble. The YouGov seat predictor got the result to hung Parliament pretty much dead on. It led to a front-page write-up by Sam Coates of the Times. I remember messaging him on the night that it came out. Sam, either that projection is bonkers or I am. I no longer know. <laughs> I take some consolation from the fact that I was remaining open-minded. In the war of facts against narrative, the narrative was that the Conservatives would increase their majority. It was tempting to discard any facts which did not fit. A few days before the election, I had my greatest ever commissioning triumph. We had jokingly talked in the office about hope clicks, the opposite of hate clicks. The New Statesman's left-wing readers wanted to hear that Labour were doing well. We didn't want to produce journalism that simply validated their preconceptions. But equally well, it was notable how much interest there was in stories which deviated from the standard narrative of Theresa May marching to victory. Tell me, I said to the politics team, what would happen in the event of a hung parliament? Our readers should know. Let's write it. The worst case is they've learned a bit more about coalitions, confidence and supply, and minority administrations. I found out what the best case was at 10.01pm on the 8th of June 2017. Minutes before the exit poll, people were still excitedly tweeting about the possibility of a 100-seat majority for Theresa May. 
Then David Dimbleby delivered the news. Conservatives had lost seats. They remained the largest party, but no longer had an overall majority. There's a photo of my face reacting to the news. I am open-mouthed. We all were. And pretty much that second, what happens in a hung parliament became one of the most Googled search terms in the UK. (laughs) Hundreds of thousands of people were reading our piece at once. I was happy. It was a great article. I was also struck by something. The New Statesman being a small magazine website often struggles to compete with the big newspapers on Google. Here we were triumphing because it seemed our rivals hadn't written that piece. The next day, Theresa May unveiled the cost of staying in Downing Street, a confidence and supply arrangement with the DUP. We later discovered it cost one billion in extra cash for Northern Ireland. One billion pounds of public money, something which never figured in the election campaign, unlike the SNP squeeze message two years before. I won't be covering another election for the New Statesman, but I hope that my colleagues will continue their proud tradition of ignoring the herd and therefore being right. The seductive power of the conventional narrative is one of the most distorting forces in political journalism. Jeremy Corbyn is useless, Donald Trump is a joke, Theresa May is the Iron Lady, Remain will win, the Lib Dems are finished, Nigel Farage has retired from politics. All of these seem true until suddenly they're not. For commentators and reporters on the left, it's particularly tricky terrain to navigate because the printed press is dominated by the right and therefore the consensus seems to be sympathetic to that point of view. So... This is the first of my seven deadly sins of political journalism, the teleological view. It's also the easiest to cure. Just stop doing it. Ask questions, even if they seem odd or niche. Pin down politicians on underpriced scenarios. We must try and tune out what everyone else is obsessed with and ask ourselves, what could happen that no one is talking about? As there are traditionally seven deadly sins, here are my choices for the others. And there are definitely seven, because otherwise this one would be very embarrassing. Innumeracy. Most political journalists are arts and humanities graduates. That can lead to a lack of ease with economics as a policy area, reports that count figures, and with parliamentary arithmetic, how many votes are needed for this to pass. It also leads to a lack of understanding in the way that polls are reported. Most have a margin of error of three percentage points. All are an art as well as a science, taking the raw numbers and applying filters such as likelihood to vote. Still, though, outlying polls are reported as news without being placed in context, and moves of just one or two points are treated as significant. Number three, the neutral amplifier model. One of my favourite sayings about journalism is this. It is not journalism's job to report that people are saying it's raining. It's journalism's job to look out of the window. Too often the words of a high-profile politician are repeated uncritically. I will renegotiate the withdrawal agreement and get something better. We will leave the single market but retain the same benefits. In other cases, a clearly partisan source is treated as anonymous gospel because the story is deemed too good to debunk, and in any case, the person briefing it might then go to a rival outlet. Under the neutral amplifier model, spin is reported without qualification. But the job of journalists is not to tell you what the Labour spokesman is saying. It's to evaluate it and deliver it to readers in context. We need to look out of the window. A related problem to this is the rise of journalists as personal brands. Twitter has created an arena where status, measured in follower numbers, is obvious. That has gamified political journalism. Reporters want to get full credit for their own stories, attract attention to themselves, and sometimes buff their egos. Tweet early, tweet often, and don't worry too much if you get something wrong, because any attention is good. You wouldn't believe the number of journalists I follow who tweeted that Theresa May was resigning, as if I couldn't get that information from any other source, but they just wanted to prove that they knew about it. Number four, the confident poshman problem. 
This phrase was coined by a lobby journalist I know, who self-defines as a confident posh man. There are loads of them in Westminster, he observes. There are two obvious reasons for that. The first is that lobby journalists are based in the Commons itself, so they double up as fixers and emissaries between the newspapers and politicians themselves. You know, if you want to get a senior cabinet to s- member to speak at your Christmas dinner, your political editor is the one who's deemed to be able to fix that for you. That would be a brave. That means it would be a brave or confident news desk who would send someone with you know blue hair or visible tattoos, or you know in some cases even a, a regional accent. The Commons itself insists on men wearing ties in the chamber and is an intimidating place to work. Stella Creasy, the Labour MP, calls it Hogwarts. <laughs> the strange quirks, prayer cards, pujan carpets, tea room serving spotted dick, are less disorienting if you've already been to public school. The second reason is that news desks each send between one and six correspondents, so there is no way to coordinate gender balance, let alone racial diversity, across the entire lobby. As a result, it is very white very graduate, very privately educated. It has plenty of younger women in it, but the attrition rate is really high after 30 because late nights, long days, and unpredictable hours are hard to juggle with caring responsibilities. It was only in 2015 that The Guardian announced the first ever job share for political editors, although that experiment is already over. Sin number five, no punishment for failure. Notoriously, one senior political journalist confidently predicted that Britain would join the euro. It did not. One Sunday paper reported that 48 letters of no confidence had gone into Graham Brady, chairman of the 1922 committee, a year before they did so. An amazing scoop if you look at it one way, said a writer for another, one other organisation to me. Among the journalists I spoke to, there was a general acceptance that some of their colleagues treated political journalism as entertainment. A story could be just that. And outlets such as the Financial Times and Bloomberg, which cater to a specialist audience who may make investment decisions based on their coverage, there are heavy sanctions for getting it wrong. Elsewhere, attitudes are far more relaxed. 99 to 1 as as balance. Many of the problems I've described are more acute on newspapers and websites because of the time pressures and the focus on headlines. This one is worse than broadcasters, which have a duty under regulatory rules to be impartial. The BBC has ruled that climate change is a scientific fact, so the starting point of discussions for it should not be, is it real or not? But during the EU referendum campaign, I heard frequent complaints that the economic risks of leaving the EU, the subject of broad agreement by 99% of economists, trade experts and scientists, were treated as impossible to rule on. One economist, usually a guy called Patrick Minford, would represent the small, yeah, it's fine, camp. One economist would represent the entire rest of the profession. But viewers and listeners would have no idea that one spoke for a much larger group than the other. Sin number seven, the view from Versailles. As humans, we find people more interesting than policies. It's just a fact. But that has huge distorting effects on political journalism. Best political journalists use people to tell their stories, reducing an abstract clash of ideas to a human scale. The worst ones treat existential questions as props for a kind of Punch and Judy show. It was this tendency which led the EU referendum campaign to be covered as a contest between Dave and Boris. What can we do about this, I asked one journalist I respect. His answer surprised me. People will read about clashes, he said. They won't read about the dynamics between two theories. It's not like covering a murder. It's like two sides of a debate, but you've decided what the debate is and what the sides are. If you don't have the confidence to do that, you are nothing. His answer, he said, was to create people. That is, to build up politicians as emblems of a political viewpoint. 
Middle-of-the-road MPs have traditionally been reluctant to talk to journalists. The party whips don't like it. They worry it will harm their careers. The awkward squad at the fringes of each party the, behave very differently. Jacob Rees-Mogg exists because he picks up the phone to journalists, he told me. But that leaves political shows where Anna Soubry debates John Redwood forever. My unnamed source encouraged a moderate Tory MP to do more broadcast interviews and to present himself as a spokesman for the broad centre of his party. It was an act of chutzpah, but perhaps a necessary one. All our stories are told through other people's mouths, my source said. Is it creating creating someone to deliver those quotes overstepping the mark? He thought not. And the more I thought about it, the more I agree with him. Journalists create public figures all the time. We decide which YouTuber to interview, which athlete to put on the front page, and which politicians are at the top of our mental Rolodex. We are quite rightly beginning to reckon with the lack of race, class and sex diversity in political journalism and to expand our pool of sources. Why shouldn't that apply on ideological grounds as well? There is one more dark side to the view from Versailles, and it is this. Too often, I feel, journalists frame one type of person as true Britons. We talk about Labour's heartlands in working-class northern English regions when the party is actually now strongest in multi-ethnic big cities. Asked to reflect on Labour's loss of votes in the European elections, Richard Tice, chair of the Brexit Party, said, this has happened because they haven't listened to their core heartlands, they've listened to people in Islington. Labour has three Westminster seats in the Islington region, each with a thumping majority. It is also, incidentally, a place with extremely high levels of deprivation in some pockets. So what is the party's heartland now? When angry white men in their 50s talk about their grievances, we implicitly present them as the authentic voice of unheard Britain. But plenty of groups are just as locked out of media platforms. Why are the views of a retired steelworker in Grimsby about where the country has gone wrong deemed more important than those of a second-generation Nigerian-British nurse in Plasto? Citizenship is supposed to transcend personal identity, yet we still indulge an idea of the vault. Finally, a note of optimism. Political journalism is incredibly difficult. It involves cultivating sources, sometimes over years, with the knowledge that a single rogue story could result in them freezing you out altogether. Party leaderships can be uncooperative, refusing to submit to print interviews or press conferences. In the age of Twitter and rolling news, speed is highly prized. Political journalists work long, anti-social hours in a building full of mice. They get, it really is grim, and smells of sewage now too. Um, It's a potent metaphor. (laughs) They get trolled on Twitter. At least one, the BBC's Laura Kunzberg, has needed bodyguards just to enable her to do her job. On print titles, they answer to news desks who want a story that is new, exclusive, and can be summed up in a single sentence. Trying to mash the complexity of reality into that format is incredibly tough. On television and radio, they struggle to navigate through rules on impartiality in a hyper-partisan environment where both sides constantly complain about bias. They're expected to understand a dizzying array of jargon and have the confidence to tell a cabinet minister live and in real time that they are talking bollocks. That takes serious confidence and expertise. They deal with liars, self-promoters and sources who are actively trying to manipulate them. There is nonetheless a huge amount of good political journalism out there. And by God do we need it more now than ever.